This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In chapter six of Sarah's brilliant book, Bodies in Blue, she discusses the impact of the American Civil War on the men who fought in the families of those soldiers. She tells stories of men unable to cope with the return to civilian life, who were described as productive before the war, uh, but who could no longer hold down a job or deal with the day-to-day life of their family after the war. Many were committed to mental institutions, dismal places of medical experimentation and terrible loneliness. Sarah discusses one man who was a successful farmer for years, providing for his wife and a number of children. But slowly, over the decades, after returning from fighting for the Union, he grew increasingly erratic. Eventually, he died in the New York State Asylum at Utica. In another heartbreaking story, a young man named Caleb Moncrief wrote to the asylum asking whether his veteran dad was getting much gray and inquiring whether he even remembered his family. A little census searching showed that Caleb Moncrief had named his own baby son after his long-lost father. Men lost, broken, and traumatized by war were unable to fulfill the duties expected of Victorian fathers. Today, I want to take Sarah's discussions of the ability and inability to work, Victorian masculinity, and gendered conceptualizations of domesticity to discuss fatherhood. For her more focused exploration of these issues in the post-Civil War U.S., you will have to, of course, get a copy of her book and read it for yourself. Read it! Building from her work in the work of scholars of gender, family, and Victorian masculinity, this episode draws together the threads of U.S. and British ideas about fatherhood from around 1850 to 1900. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth garner Maserick, And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator-level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. History. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. Like all things... Fatherhood has a history. For this episode, I wanted to draw together the histories of fatherhood in the 19th century U.S. and Britain. There uh, isn't actually really much conversation happening across the pond in historiography. Um, Historiography means history of the history for those of you who are not immersed in the horrible world of graduate school. (laughs) Um, So more or less, history of the history. So in addition to revisiting things I haven't read since comprehensive exams like Davidoff and Hall's Family Fortunes and John Tosh's A Man's Place, I searched for everything I could find about fatherhood in Britain and the U.S. during the era we generally refer to as the Victorian period. There are some significant works about the U.S. and the U.K. from the late 1990s, written in the late 1990s, um, which was when masculinity studies really took off in our profession. And then a few more recent books and dissertations scattered throughout the 2000s and the 2010s. 
Sarah's book touches on this topic in the Civil War and Reconstruction era, uh, but friend of the show, John Riley's dissertation, and I assume assumed to be book, is even more specifically focused on fatherhood in the Civil War. In addition, uh, Stephen Frank's Life with Father and Brett Carroll's article about John Shoebridge Williams, um, I also looked at sp specifically to uh, John Riley's work on this topic for the 19th century U.S. John Tosh and Claudia Nelson have written great books on fatherhood among the English middling sort, and Julia Marie Strange has added a much-needed look at working-class fatherhood in Britain, written really recently. It was published in 2015. Tosh, Nelson, Strange, Frank, and Carol are talking specifically about white men. Brenda Stevenson's Life in Black and White and parts of Riley's dissertation address the experiences of enslaved and free black fathers. Uh, I couldn't find much at all speaking specifically to fatherhood as a concept in immigrant communities, Native American communities, imperial fatherhood, or like getting children on brown indigenous women, um, or the ways that fatherhood differed from one religious community to the next in the U.S. or the U.K. And by that, I'm thinking specifically of like the Catholic versus the Protestant versus the Jewish communities in both countries in this period. Uh, this may be a limit of my libraries. So if any of you listeners are aware of some published histories that I just didn't uncover, please share them with us, uh, an email, a tweet, a Facebook post or a message. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but you know, this is also like a one hour podcast, not a book. So I had to leave something out. Pick and choose, pick and choose. We're going to be talking about some historical categories that are complicated. What the British thought of as working class or middle class didn't always look the same as what Americans thought of as socioeconomic classes. By the time Victoria came to power, the British had already abolished slavery and it would take 30 more years for the Americans to follow suit. While there were certainly people of color living in the UK in the 19th century, there were nowhere near the numbers as in the American South or even the Northern states. There simply had never been the same demand for an enslaved laboring class in the UK as there was in the Americas. But for the sake of keeping things a bit simpler, we're going to talk interchangeably about Anglo-American middle and working classes, both black and white. Our discussions of enslaved people of color, however, are drawn almost exclusively from examples in the United States. Also, I've always found it weird that historians of the U.S. refer to the 1840-ish to 1900-ish period as the Victorian period, the same way that the British do, even though Americans had eschewed <laughs> the British monarchy in 1785. Do you know why people talk about the Victorian era in the U.S., Elizabeth? I believe it's a matter of convenience. Um, we have a lot of other names for smaller chunks of time, the antebellum, Civil War era, Reconstruction, Gilded Age, Progressive Era, whoop, whoop, etc. Sorry, that's my period. <laughs> um, but nothing besides the 19th century or the long 19th century sometimes, um, but to talk about the long haul of the century. And because even after our independence, a lot of white American culture filtered in from Britain, fashions, medicines, uh, economies, even human rights throughout the 19th century, it makes a sort of sense to talk about a Victorian era in American history. The U.S. Uh, was still really in development as a world power and still had a relationship with the U.K. well after American independence. The huge cotton manufacturing industry in the U.K., for example, got the majority of its raw cotton from the U.S. until shipping lines were disrupted by the Civil War. Places like Manchester, England, also known as Cottonopolis, were economies built entirely on cotton and relied on that cheap raw material flowing across the Atlantic Sea via slave labor. Even though the British abolished the slave trade in 1807 and abolished slavery in their own colonies and at home in the 1830s, many Brits continued to profit off the enslaved peoples of the United States. Typical. So anyway, Victorian ideas about fatherhood in the U.S. and Britain. I read everything I could get my hands on on this topic. It would be impossible to say something like, all white middle class men did fathering this way, and then leave it at that. Of course, every father did things a bit differently, lived his life, and did his parenting the way his particular background and experiences moved him to. But still, 
there is a sort of broad strokes kind of way that we might talk about Victorian fatherhood. Though the details differed for, for fathers of different classes and ethnicities and nationalities, the common baseline for Victorian fatherhood was about providing. To be a good father required that one provide economically for one's family. This was true for white, middle, and working class men, free, black, middle, and working class men, and immigrant men. Enslaved men faced different challenges. That's kind of an understatement. Yeah. Rather than thinking about providing economically for their family, they had to think about how to keep their family together, surrendering, as John Riley notes, hard-earned wages in hopes of stopping their children from being sold out of state. Intrastate slave sales separated families regularly, and fathers might have to walk dozens of miles to visit a wife and children on another plantation. Riley also argues that enslaved black men who ran away, seeking freedom in non-slave states, did so to earn enough wages to purchase their wives' and children's freedoms. Though this is messy and evidence that there are nuances and important details that we can't ignore when thinking about fatherhood, enslaved black men also strove to provide for their families, to provide safety and freedom. Provider in the economic sense is a bit of a stretch for the enslaved black father, but that's okay. We'll return to those nuances and those experiences in a bit. First, though, we should preface our provider conversations with a little background on what fathers looked like or were supposed to look like prior to the Victorian era. Provider as central fatherly role is something that is tied to Victorian masculinity. It wasn't always the case, for example, that men were the exclusive breadwinner of the middle class family. Economic production wasn't always the most important element of the fatherly identity. In an earlier era, we'll say from the mid-18th century through the mid-19th century, fatherhood at the middle and upper class levels of white society was in, quote, harmony with domesticity, according to historians Catherine Hall and Lenore Davidoff. Fathers, especially middle class fathers, were responsible for their children's religious and, for boys, worldly education. They managed the household and its economic output, aided and supported by wives. David Offenhall's standard family fortunes about late 18th and early 19th century British family life describes a pre-Victorian model of middle-class domesticity in which fathers had intense involvement with their children. Similarly, Brett Carroll argues that from about 1750 through the Victorian era, the American middle-class conceptualizations of familial relations were in flux, being reshaped by the social, political, economic, and religious upheavals of that period. Marriages were supposed to be companionate and romantic. Uh, relations between parents and children were supposed to be more egalitarian, less authoritarian, as had been the case in the largely Calvinist northern colonies before independence. And the ideal of Republican motherhood was imbuing women with the responsibility for shaping the new generation of American citizens. By the time Victoria came to power in England, many of these same ideals were evident in the United Kingdom. Victoria and Albert's marriage in particular was very much depicted as the ideal, companionate, affectionate, and egalitarian. Side note, Americans were quite enamored of the English queen. In America, you could buy Victoria soaps commemorating her 1838 coronation. Some Philadelphians suggested changing the name to Victoria Delphia. And American newspapers dedicated thousands of words to describe the young queen's lavish processionals and celebration of Victoria's crowning. Like cotton, literature, and railroads, British celebrity culture and norms surrounding fatherhood permeated the United States. So while scholar Claudia Nelson noted that in Georgian Britain, quote, fathers oversaw discipline, led the family in prayer, determined the nature of their children's educations and marriages and careers. Um, and that was written in spe specific reference to British fathers. It was very much a shared ideology with the Americans, both before and after the American Revolution. There weren't major challenges in print or popular culture to this level of fatherly involvement in that period. Instead, um, this was the expectation supported by the religious revival at work around the Atlantic at the time. 
Generally, there weren't distinct separate spheres of work and home life, particularly as pre-industrial revolution middle-class businesses tended to be run out of the home. But the Victorian era was shaped by industrialization, urbanization, the responding religious revivals of the 19th century, and shifting gender roles. By the start of the Victorian period, we'll say 1837, when Victoria took the throne, work and home life were already being separated, or were separated already. At the middle class level, there were shifting attitudes about women and their roles in marriages, family, households, and society, and right alongside attitudes about women were shifting attitudes about men. So effectively, the Victorian period created conditions in which the concept of fathers as first and foremost providers took shape. Exactly. And because a working class, um, different from rural peasants or farmers who occupied the same general societal space 200 years earlier, didn't really come into existence until the Industrial Revolution, we see that provider identity formulated for those folks at approximately the same time. On the one hand, we have this broadly conceived idea of Victorian fatherhood as provider, particularly when we are talking about working class and middle class men, black and white. On the other hand, there were, of course, nuances that were shaped by class, race and nationality, and we will touch on those as much as possible. In A Man's Place, which is the title of the book, John Tosh categorizes the Victorian father into one of three kinds. The first is the most common representation of white middle-class fathers in popular culture, the absent father. This is the guy who was out working long days in an office or overseeing a factory. Uh, maybe that room full of fellows at the beginning of The Greatest Showman where like dozens of men uh -huh. are at big typewriter-looking yeah. calculators wearing weird sea green see-through visors to keep the glare <laughs> out of their eyes, and they're punching in numbers for like 10 hours a day. And then after work, they unwind at a local gentleman's club, drinking hard liquor and smoking cigars, maybe throwing some dice, maybe checking out a pugilist match or a chicken fight. Yes. He might make it home for supper, but more likely he'll just take his dinner out with friends. He most likely returns home long after his children have gone to bed and the scullery maid has already banked the household fires and steal into his bedroom. He only visits his wife's room once a month uh, while, when he is invited. And then he gets up the next day and does it all again. This absent father is providing for his family, working long hours and bringing in income sufficient to send his son off to boarding school to maintain the home with a couple of live-in servants, to make sure his wife has what she needs to raise their children. He is, according to Tosh, quote, aloof, bewildered by children and more content to leave all that domestic business to his wife. According to Tosh, this absent father was far rarer than suggested among white middle-class men in Britain than earlier scholars of the period suggest. Conversely, among white working-class men, the absent father was absent because he was working for the family, and this was the sacrifice and devotion of the working-class father. The absent father is a cliche of the working class narrative in Victorian British history, but that he was working for his family is important and it actually shaped the way that children of working class households thought about their fathers. He was a good father because he was absent, because he was working for his family. Mm -hmm. And that's what Julia Marie Strange in her recent work on working class fatherhood explores and highlights through examinations of working class autobiographies and other sources. Strange also poses the idea that unemployment, which was couched in language failure by their contemporaries, was, for the fathers themselves, actually fragility. And a really moving chapter that utilizes a poverty survey of York working-class families, the interviewers are quite generous in their depiction of the unemployed men included in the study. Unlike a lot of middle-class white Victorian reformers and poor relief officials, the catalogers in this study described the evidence of men who tried really, really hard to provide for their families and the effects that a stagnated economy, underemployment, and the death of traditional manufacturing in the region had on the family, and more significantly, the fathers themselves. They were gaunt, 
their feet blistered and swollen from walking upwards of 30 miles a day in search of work they rarely found. They were silent through most of the interview, sitting in the corner of the room, the shame and shattering hopelessness of not being able to provide for their family etched on their faces, stooped shoulders, fidgeting hands. A lot of middle-class white reformers would have seen complacent, lazy, undeserving poor in these tableaus. But Strange reads the true empathy of the surveyors in their reports. In introducing the concept of fragile fathers, Strange notes that in these instances, men and their wives sought to validate men's household and family status when the shadow of his unemployment hung over the family. More common in the white middle class in Britain, but also as Stephen Frank shows in the U.S., were the distant and fond fathers. The distant and fond fathers emerged from the cult of domesticity that characterized familial relations in the Victorian Anglo-American world. The cult of domesticity was made up of the companionate romantic marriage, the home as a sanctuary, the innocence of childhood that needed to be cultivated carefully by both parents, but especially the mother, and yes, father as provider and breadwinner. The cult of domesticity was imagined in ladies' home manuals, fiction, newspaper ads for a range of household products, stories about the queen and her family, finishing schools for girls and private schools for boys. The ideal, if less regularly the reality, emphasized separate spheres. Even while evangelicism made middle-class professionals and businessmen worried that their work was putting their mortal souls in danger, because greed is sinful, they saw it as a necessary evil. The solution was to keep that taint out of the home, which was being recast as a tranquil, moral space. The angel of the home, or the white middle-class wife and mother, was shouldered out of her traditional role in business and finance. Instead, she was bestowed the high honor of moral authority. Her power rested in her management of the household. It would be, in this ideal vision of domesticity, her place to see to the rearing, educating, and religious instruction of the children. And Daddy would bring home the bacon, but would otherwise spend most of his time out of the house. He'd be at work, at the gentlemen's club, in places of political discourse and decision-making, or with some mistress upon who he could inflict his carnal lusts, which were otherwise too much for his delicate, angelic wife. (laughs) Though more removed from reality than popular representations of the period would have us believe, from, you know, the classic fictions that that we read still today, to the serial stories that were in Victorian, uh, I don't know, like penny novels. This was the idealized vision of domesticity and fatherhood. The ideal was not without real consequences, however. The imagined natural lusts of men and the sexual frailty of women were maneuvered in defense of laws like the Contagious Diseases Acts and the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885. In the former, the British government sought to regulate women who sold sex with invasive and forced medical examinations and internment in venereal disease, quote-unquote, lock hospitals. In the latter, many of the same men who insisted that prostitution was a necessary evil in the 1860s supported the changes in the criminal law that were supposed to protect women and girls from being trapped into prostitution. In reality, that law just allowed for crackdowns on brothels, which forced women from the relative safety of indoor sex work to the more dangerous places uh, like the streets of London, right? Like Jack the Ripper's territory, but whatever. Religiosity required that middle-class white men do their darndest to keep these carnal lusts in check, of course. But as one young defender of the Contagious Diseases Act says, kings, philosophers, and priests, the learned and the noble, the wise no less than the ignorant, have tasted freely of Circe's cup in every age and under every clime, and having thus always existed, have we not good reason to fear that prostitution will always continue? Some of our opponents believe that prostitution can be done away with altogether, but the day when not a single prostitute can be found in London even will not be, I fear, in the time of any of us. Hence, when we say that prostitution is a necessary evil, we imply merely that it will always exist so long as the animal part of his nature 
preponderates in man. In other words, boys will be boys. Uh, gross. <laughs> but sure, the men who passed these laws were mostly family men themselves, adhering to the Victorian domestic ideals to some degree or another. Some may have been absent fathers, others distant or fond. This distant father was concerned about and invested in his family, but felt obligated by his duty to the moral welfare and stability of the family to be firm, even harsh, with his children, and not to show too much affection. The fond father, according to Tosh, was a playmate to his children, affectionate and fun. This is the father that Abe described somewhat satirically in her episode, Get Lit. In both cases, however, the primary function of the father wasn't really parenting in a broader sense. The distant father left the parenting to mother, interceding to protect the children's mortal souls when he felt it necessary, but generally buying into the idea that middle-class women were morally superior and better equipped to raise the children. The fun dad just riled the kids up before bed, and then it fell to mom to coax them into sleep in the stuffy attic bedroom. Sound familiar? <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> so in the white middle class, the absent father was a common trope, but an uncommon reality. In the working class family, the absent father could be a good thing. And from what Strain suggests, absent fathers were likely also either distant, like sort of unsure how to connect emotionally with children, but concerned about their welfare and success, or fond, playful, and affectionate. All of these historians show that individual fathers' parenting is, is hard to categorize, though these broad strokes tell us about the broader social and cultural conditions that shaped ideas about and practices of fatherhood. Immigrants arriving in the United States and Britain who tried to assimilate also emulated the Victorian fatherly ideal, sometimes to the point of exaggeration, but many also rejected Victorian family hierarchies in favor of maintaining their own traditions, or they blended them. Still, for communities in which remittances were expected, the quote-unquote distant father who was also provider was common. Chinese immigration to the U.S. in the 19th century, before the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, were overwhelmingly male. In 1852, for example, according to one source, of the 8,129 Chinese who arrived in California via ship, only eight were women. That's crazy. <laughs> Men sought economic opportunities in America, which they found in agricultural, mining, railroad construction, and other low-skilled jobs. Some were fathers when they arrived in America. Some sent money home to support their families. Some earned money in the U.S. first, returned home, and married, and then came back to the United States, leaving the new, usually pregnant, wife behind. While 19th century travel required long sea journeys, at least five months from California to Hong Kong, work in the United States was often seasonal, and the wages earned, while meager, could buy these men passage home with enough leftover to support a family. Laborers made between 4 to $15 weekly at mid-century. The cost of a ticket and steerage cabin of a steamship from California to China was on average $30, which included food, though not always a dedicated place to sleep. Chinese laborers who made the lower wage might have to wait several years before setting aside enough money to travel home, start a family, and then return to the United States. Others turned their wages into profitable businesses, which allowed them to fund the passage of others from their towns and villages in China to the U.S. and support an extended family through remittances. Among the black fathers in the United States and the United Kingdom, the concept of provider was still important in the 19th century. As discussed by Kavara Reed, Laura Dawkins, Brenda Stevenson, Mark Okuhata, and others, enslaved black men were denied the freedom to perform anything resembling a normal fatherly function. Not only were they prevented from providing for their children, but there was little they could do to protect their children from violence, sexual abuse, removal from the family, from hunger or disease, from backbreaking labor. Enslavement was a system that stripped black men of a lot of what they considered manhood, including fatherhood. That was true for enslaved men who were recently deposited on the shores of the United States and those who were born into slavery here. 
No enslaved man's cultural background permitted for this level of schism from his family, not the cultures that came with enslaved people from the west coast of Africa, nor the Christian and syncretic versions of Christianity that many adopted after generations. In slave states before emancipation, enslaved African Americans were property. They were not allowed to own property. They had no parental rights over their offspring. As one Kentucky court finding summarized in 1811, quote, the father of a slave is unknown to our law. So families were torn apart by enslavement. Charles Bell, an enslaved man who published his memoir in 1837, wrote about the effect enslavement had on his own father. His mother was dragged away, sold to some other plantation, and Ball watched as she screamed, Oh, master, do not take me for my child. And the man who had purchased her beat her over the head and shoulders, tore little Ball from her arms, and pulled her away. Ball said he never heard her voice again, though he hoped for it every day. His father was shattered by this destruction of their family. He, quote, had formerly been of a gay social temper, and when he came to see us on a Saturday night, he always brought us some little present, such as the means of a poor slave would allow, apples, melons, sweet potatoes, or if he could procure nothing else, a little parched corn, which tasted better in our cabin because he had brought it. After this time, I never heard him laugh heartily or sing a song. He became gloomy and morose in his temper to all but me and spent nearly all his leisure time with my grandfather, who claimed kindred with some royal family in Africa and had been a great warrior in his native country. When Ball's father's enslaver decided that he was too much of a flight risk, he sold him. Quote, the price was agreed upon, but as my father was a very strong, active, and resolute man, it was deemed unsafe for the Georgian to attempt to seize him, even with the aid of others, in the daytime when he was at work, as it was known he carried upon his person a large knife. It was therefore determined to secure him by stratagem. Ball's grandfather learned of the plot that the enslavers had hatched to sell off Ball's father and helped him run away. Though he'd been affectionate and good toward his son, Ball's father had little other choice but to leave him behind. Ball writes of his father with a sad sort of hero worship, describing the great strength of his father, but also clearly felt the sundering of losing both parents. He was left with only one kin attachment thereafter, his grandfather, who, quote, manifested toward me all the fondness which a person so far advanced in life could be expected to feel for a child. Ball's grandfather told him that everyone who practiced his faith relied on a single small book written in plain language that had all the rules of faith and practice. The book, quote, required neither fastings, penances, nor pilgrimages, but tenderness to wives and children, one of its most positive injunctions. Similarly, John Brown, a formerly enslaved man who was, at the time of writing his memoir in 1854, living in England, emphasized the importance of a free man's provision for his family. Quote, John Glasgow, a man John Brown knew, had saved money, but not sufficient to support a wife and idol. Thus, the young couple saw that they must depend upon their own exertions, and they set to work accordingly. Through the father's interest, they got into a small farm in the neighborhood, and John Glasgow invested his savings in the purchase of three horses, a plow, and a cart. As his wife had been accustomed to farming operations, she agreed to attend to the concerns of the farm, whilst John, who, though well acquainted with the economy of a vessel, from her Kelson to her signal halyards, knew nothing at all about farming, determined to continue his calling, and therefore engaged himself as an able-bodied seaman on board one of the many vessels trading between Liverpool and the West Indies. At the end of his second voyage, he found himself the father of a fine brown baby, over which he shed many tears when the time came for him to leave port again. But John and his wife prospered, he in his vocation, she at her farm, and as he had managed to add trade to navigation, there seemed to be a prospect of his amassing wealth in the course of a few years. Indeed, had he only known how to read and write, he might have been mate long ago. Glasgow weeps at the sight of his baby, a touching tableau of a fond father, but also knows the most important thing he can do for that baby is return to the sea to provide for his family. The expectation that father equals provider is what created the conditions for men who felt they'd failed their families and families who felt their father had failed them. 
even where middle class and working class or black and white ideas about gender and family differed, fathers in all of these communities were judged internally and externally on their providing for their offspring. Frustratingly for many men, institutional and structural forces prevented them from fulfilling the fatherly role. In 19th century Virginia, for example, laws prohibiting the marriage of black and white people meant that resulting children were often left in a kind of limbo, not quite belonging in either community. Historian Brenda Stevenson tells of children with white mothers and black fathers. If they were born free, as was usually the case with children born of white, even poor or indentured mothers, the children might be apprenticed position until they turned 18. At that point, they'd be turned out, usually with very little money or clout in the world. According to Stevenson, Jane Robinson, a quote-unquote mulatto servant, had been indentured since her birth. She met and married George Watson, a local free black man, and they had five children before she could gain her freedom. Virginia law demanded that their children serve her master until they reached adulthood. When it came to having control over their children, indentured servitude for people of color could be just as harsh as slavery. But some free black men and women were able to circumvent these laws. Stevenson shares the story of John Watson, who married an enslaved woman named Kate, and he was able to borrow $200 to purchase her freedom before they had any children. Essential, because if she bore him any while she was enslaved, their children would inherit their enslavement or her enslavement. Free men of color in the antebellum South faced often insurmountable odds when it came to trying to keep a family together, especially if any members of the family were enslaved. According to Stevenson, Caroline Hunter's father left her, her mother and three siblings, because they were all enslaved and he was free. Their enslaver treated her father like a slave, beating him, threatening his wife and children, and so he left. In Stevenson's study of Northern Virginia, she found that most free people of color moved north, many to Philadelphia, particularly after the 1831 Nat Turner Rebellion, which ushered in more restrictive laws governing free people of color. In Philadelphia, there was a strong middle-class black community that had schools, businesses, and offered assistance to free black people interested in conforming to the middle-class black identity. Even with a pre-existing community, however, life for those fleeing the increasingly risky life of Northern Virginia in exchange for the more welcoming Philadelphia struggled. Stevenson describes at length Philip Nelson, who embraced the quote-unquote traditional values of his day. He saw his role in his family as breadwinner and protector. When he moved them to Philadelphia, he found life more expensive and good-paying work hard to find. His embrasure of this traditional role of provider was propped up by his patriarchal approach to his family. He made all the decisions, when to move, where to move, what to keep or sell, which Stevenson suggests was actually not the norm for free black families in this period. Instead, she notes, quote, the nature of the economic and social oppression Southern free people of color faced, their ties to a slave past and their distinct cultural heritage collectively meant that many did not live in patriarchally structured households. It also meant that a growing number did not have nuclear families. Free black domestic relations were more fluid and malleable, ones whose composition, structure, and leadership could change both within and between generations. Despite this diversity, however, patriarchal authority remained an underlying theme in the social world of free blacks, even if more ideal than real. As Kavar Reed shows in his recent dissertation on black families in post-emancipation Georgia, father as provider continued after the American Civil War. In one anecdote, Reed tells of a freedman named Charles Billings, who worked with the Freedmen's Bureau to try and get custody of his daughter in May 1868. Her mother was dead, and Billings insisted on pursuing his parental rights. The caseworker, Fred Mosbach, commented in his report on Billings's evident emotional and financial ability to provide a home for his daughter. Though Billings would first have to undergo another investigation by the Freedmen's Bureau, he would ultimately be reunited with his little girl. Reed argues that black men's commitment to family was a defining characteristic of their post-emancipation struggles. 
like Billings, who fought to gain custody of his child after both were made legally free by the Emancipation Proclamation, establishing a semblance of a more traditional manhood, particularly as manhood was connected to fatherhood, was essential to the reconstruction of black masculinity after emancipation. For the Victorian father to be the provider, he had to have economic power. In industrial economies, one's value is tied to productivity. So an unemployed man, especially one with a family, is shameful. But it's not always possible to have economic power. It isn't always possible today, and it certainly wasn't possible for many in the 19th century, Britain and the U.S. As we've already discussed, enslaved black men in the United States had no legal right to earn wages, our own property, or produce something that could provide economically for their family. Even for a free man of color, if his family was enslaved, it took immense economic power to provide the one thing his wife and children really needed, freedom. For white men, particularly those in the working class, economic stagnation, seasonal labor, and any other form of unemployment could be, and usually were, or was, disastrous. Many men, yes, drank their wages and left their families cold and hungry. But many found themselves without work because of forces completely out of their control. If the case study of York, England that Strange examines is much of an indicator, these societal ebbs and flows were far more regularly the cause of unemployment than fathers drinking away all the wages and, like, missing work. It's more likely that most men kept back some of their wages for the pub, but generally contributed most of of their wages to the household income. That didn't mean that life wasn't always hard for these folks anyway. Even with two parents doing whatever they could to scrape by, life for the working class was often miserable and crushing. In the defining text for 19th century working class family life, Ellen Ross introduces the idea that the working class was constantly at love and toil for their families. This has become the standard way to think about working class mothers on whom Ross focuses her study but not fathers. Strange shows through studies of working class autobiography and memoir that it is the case for both. Love and toil was central to 19th century working class parents. Mother sacrificed for and nurtured her children, even those with distant mothers remembered wanting her when they were sick or hurt. That sacrifice when she worked extra shifts to make more money, went meals without eating, poured every bit of herself into her family, was her toil, and her toil was her show of love. For working class fathers, they worked. They arranged for their children's futures. They walked 30 miles a day to try to find paid labor. Love and toil isn't talking about love, comma, toil. Rather, it is a single concept in which working class parenthood was predicated on nurturing through provision, caring through sacrifice, loving through toil. Fathers who fail were, in the writings of their children and in the judgments passed by middle-class reformers and other outsiders, uh, almost always fathers who failed to provide. But the challenges to Victorian man's ability to provide for his family wasn't unique to white working-class men in the U.K., or free and enslaved black men in the U.S. Middle-class men were just as susceptible to being or being made unable to work. Ability, or disability, to work is also important. Injury, mental illness, and permanent disability may have been mitigated by socioeconomic status, but no Victorian man was truly immune to the effects of bodies failing. A failing body could mean life or death for a working class white or black man's family. It could have dire consequences for a middle class man, up to and including death. When you start to get into periods of social welfare programming in the late 19th and early 20th centuries from both private and public entities, you'll see people with disabilities being maligned for having children as though they don't deserve them. So to tie this all back to Sarah's book, providing for families as the primary fatherly function was disrupted by the American Civil War. Too many men were killed, too many broken physically and mentally, to return to the Victorian ideal of fatherhood. The post-war period in the U.S. was still a capitalist system that measured the worth of its men in productivity. 
there's something there's some really fascinating work on disability capitalism masculinity work and welfare already underway out there and you know we're not gonna have time to get into it here um but i encourage you to to, to look into this i know that marjorie levine clark is exploring these ideas in her current project on the british welfare system and masculinity in the early 20th century these problems are particularly fraught when we throw fatherhood into the mix because in the Victorian mindset about fathers as sole or primary breadwinners, um, which is one that goes largely unchallenged until second wave feminism at the end of the 20th century in the U.S. and the U.K., providing for the family is predicated on the ability to work. So we see these major upheavals around times of war, particularly the American Civil War, the Great War, and World War II, where masculinity is in turmoil. Governments have to think about how to deal with the loss of the father as provider for thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of families, and individual men, wounded, shattered, permanently or temporarily disabled, have to figure out how they can still be the father, the man, that they always thought they would be. For those who were fathers before they went to war, they have to figure out what kind of father they can be in the aftermath. An interesting study might be quantifying how many children of soldiers felt that their fathers shifted from fond fathers to distant or absent, but <laughs> that's a bit more ambitious a project than we have today. Is it, doesn't Sarah look at that a little bit? Um, I don't think she used those terms, but probably after she listens to this episode, oh, she will. Okay. Uh, but that will also be more probably for her second project, which is about crime and, like, families and how the Civil War affected crime. Right. So, okay. stay tuned. <sighs> so, some working class, middle class, white, black, Native American, and immigrant fathers were tyrants. Violent and controlling using physical, emotional, and or spiritual force to keep his wife and children cowering and bowing to his paterfamilias authority. Most, though, were not. Most toiled to provide for their families. and middle-class families, fathers bore the primary burden of economic production because a husband's success was supposed to provide enough for his wife to manage the household and raise the children. And working-class families, while women both worked for wages, almost always paid far less than their male counterparts, and did the majority of everyday domestic work, like cooking and child-rearing, fathers were expected to bring in the bulk of the income. Some were absent, physically and or emotionally, out of necessity, walking dozens of miles in search of work, or not quite knowing what to do with children. Many were distant, not socialized to be affectionate, but deeply invested in the well-being and future of their children. Many were fond, playing ball with their broods, teaching them how to fish, reading to them or telling them stories while snuggling in his chair. No two fathers were exactly the same, for sure, but most did their very best to provide for their families. The end. Oh, that's really sweet at the end. I feel a little bad because... You know, it wasn't all doom and gloom and sadness in the Victorian... I mean, the Victorian era was... The 19th century was just a terrible time to live. I would never... If someone asked me, what time period would you like to live oh in? Victorian era would be at the bottom. No way. Oh, God. It's just terrible. I mean, there is a lot of bad but... But it's also... I mean, like... Like the fond fathers who are like literally rolling on the floor with their children and barking like dogs and having a great time. They're, they're good times. Even Even the working class fathers who... Um, Strange talks about she has a whole chapter on like jokes and jokes about fatherhood oh, and, and jokes that fathers were in on or that they were the butt of the jokes. Yeah. So there, you know, there's plenty of good times and laughter even when it's awful. And I think actually Dan made me watch a Ricky Gervais stand up special. Yeah. Um, and Ricky Gervais, I guess, came from a really pretty destitute working class family. Yeah. Um, and he, he talks about how his brother started it like. Even when things were really awful, he would just make jokes and play practical jokes, and they just had a hell of a time. Like, when his mom died, he was telling this story about how his brother... They sent his older brother to 
arrange with the vicar, the mm-hmm. like priest, to for the the things that he was going to say because they they didn't go to church, so okay. the vicar didn't know the family. Right. And so this brother slips in <laughs> like lies oh about the family, <laughs> and so like the first lie that they tell is there are three brothers. Um, there's Ricky, there's Bobby, and there's um, and there's Larry, and. Uh, somehow, well, he just he slipped it past the vicar. He said that the the, the vicar's like, and the children of the deceased include Ricky, Bobby, and Barry. And so then the whole <laughs> room, the whole church is like snickering and like laughing behind their hands. And Ricky Gervais is ta- saying how his his older brother Larry, who's standing at the front, is like looking back and like shaking his head and looking back again and shaking his head as, as the crowd is laughing and then finally he's like his shoulders are shaking because he's laughing too oh my gosh and and, and that's, then from then on he was Barry right and then he was probably Barry <laughs> so there you know even when even when things are terrible people are people are people man they find w- yeah. light in the darkness yeah. so I this was a dark and sad episode because I don't know fathers yeah. Yeah. But in Victorian fathers in particular. It, it was well, hard. I like how you tried to do as vast of a fatherhood as possible. It was really yes. nice. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I got worried about having this, like, saying Victorian fatherhood and mm-hmm. meaning white Victorian fatherhood right. and leaving out, you know, half the population or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, I try to be really cognizant of that, especially, you know, I think you started this trend when you talk about white women, you say white women and you don't assume that when we say women's movement of the 19th century or 20th century, that we're, wh- what you really mean is white women. So let's say white women. Yeah. So yeah. I thank you for that. You teach me everything I know. Oh, you're welcome. So where can you buy Sarah's book? Sarah's book you can get, I mean, obviously on Amazon, but mm-hmm. you can get it directly through the University of Georgia Press. And I've linked to it in the show notes of this episode, and we'll also put it at the top of all of the transcripts for all four of our episodes for the series at digpodcast.org. So make sure you go out, get a copy of Sarah's book. It's great. It's great. She is the most accessible historical writer in the world, and I will fight anyone who dares to <laughs> challenge me on that. Awesome. Other than that, we're not going to give you any other goodbyes because your only task right now is to go buy that book. Is to go buy that book. Love ya. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Almost, also, some Philadelphians suggested changing the city name to Victoria Delphi, Delphi, Delphia? The cult of Dom, of Dom, Could you walk any louder, dog? Jesus. No, I wrote for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so smart. You are so smart. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.